Welcome to the podcast of Hemisphere, the official journal of the European Hematology Association. Hemisphere's podcast presents insightful, expert discussions about recent hematology publications. We hope you enjoy. Welcome everyone to this episode of the Hemisphere podcast. My name is Stephen Hibbs and I'm a hematologist and clinical research fellow based at Queen Mary University of London and I'm one of the scientific editors for Hemisphere. So I'm joined today by Professor Robert Hills who's a professor of medical statistics has been very involved in leukemia trials um, over the last 20 years and who's one of the associate editors for Hemisphere and we're going to be exploring today um, a few topics about where statistics Hematology and trials overlap. Um, but Robert, I wonder if to start with, I could just ask you about your own journey, because I, I noticed that your doctoral research was initially in a field with applications to superconductors. So I'm interested to know, how did you end up moving into health? And did you notice any difference about how health researchers think about statistics compared to those in physics? Well, thank you. And it's lovely to be here. Um, hi, Stephen. Um, so that's a very interesting question, and I'm afraid it gets even worse than that, because I wasn't a physicist and I didn't do any experiments. I was a mathematician. And, uh, you know, mathematics is all about proof and truth, whatever it is. You know, one plus one is always equal to two. If you start with a set of beliefs, then everything else follows logically. That isn't true in statistics. Uh, and the reason really it isn't true is that you're dealing with people and there is a variability in people. So your, your experiment, if you like, if you of giving a, a drug to a person isn't remotely replicable because every person is different, every person's leukemia is different uh, and everybody is going to respond slightly differently and other things in the world are going to intervene. So you have this idea of uncertainty, which is you know, anathema to a mathematician who is looking at proof uh, and looking at truth and, and looking at an equation and an equation is true or not. Um, and even experimental physicists um, tend to have very, very tightly controlled experiments. So they take their data and they'll fit their, their curves to it, but they're not too worried about you know, the, the variability in the experiment because they've got their tightly controlled conditions. Um, you know, it's it's even more controlled than the best controlled lab experiment in medicine, to be honest with you. So there is a bit of a change and it, it's, it's all about sort of embracing uncertainty. But the one thing I think that's important and it, it, it is coming from the mathematical treatment training is the idea of being a professional skeptic so you never believe anything that anyone ever tells you you're asking yourself where's the evidence um but i got into it purely by accident and i got into it because i did a lot of programming in my younger days in a language called fortran which is i think now virtually extinct um but in the days before having databases um a lot of the trials units wrote their own software uh, to do the analyses and to store the data. And the language of choice was Fortran. And so I answered an advert for Fortran programmers uh, and came to work at the then Clinical Trial Service Unit in Oxford uh, and started working on a, a large trial of bowel cancer called Quasar, um, which is still producing results even 30 years later. 
But uh, I started working on that, and and I found the idea of trying to sort of, as it were, disprove everything far more interesting than the idea of trying to prove a theorem. So it was a it was a bit of a, a bit of a change in in uh, approach. It was great fun, and it still is great fun. So I'm interested in what it's like coming from that background, and then working with a lot of um, a lot of physicians, clinicians of different types, and specifically lots of hematologists. Those of us who don't have the same mathematical um, underpinnings, foundations, do you, do you find that there's certain concepts around statistics that we find particularly difficult to grasp? I think the biggest thing to understand is this idea that there is uncertainty in everything that we say and everything that we do. Uh, and obviously, this is encapsulated in the p-value um, a lot of the time. Um, but really, the idea is that we're trying to get, gather evidence of what happens on average. And a clinician, of course, is dealing with the individual case. And so what we can tell you is what we think the likely benefit of this drug is going to be. But it's all about chances. Uh, and you know, if you say this drug is likely to improve your five-year chance of surviving from 50% to 60%, well, that's fine, but actually half of the people would have survived anyway without the drug and don't need it. And the 40% of the people who had who died with the drug didn't necessarily get any benefit out of it either. So it's that sort of idea of dealing with chances and probabilities is, is quite difficult, I think. Um, and then to actually understand that statistics can be funny things. Um, there's a great tendency to sort of want to drill down into the detail of the data uh, and look at subgroups of patients and things like that. And of course, the experiments are not designed to be able to do that. They're designed to give an average. So I think the two, two big concepts are the idea that we're dealing with averages and that we have uncertainty. And, you know, we, we could go on and we could talk for days about p-values, but one of the things about a p-value is that it's not the strength of the effect of the drug, it's the amount of evidence that you've got. So if you run a small trial and you get, you know, eight versus 10 deaths in it, well, that's pretty close to nine versus nine. You, you, you know instinctively that that is not going to be significant. But if I did the same trial and I made it, you know, 100 times bigger and I got 800 versus 1,000 deaths, then now we're talking same drug, just a different size of trial. One has enough evidence and one doesn't. It doesn't mean that it doesn't work in the 8 versus 10. It just means that we can't actually say that it does work. But 800 versus 1,000 deaths is exactly the data that um, convinced us that uh, when you have a heart attack, aspirin is good for you. So this is exactly the set of numbers in the ISIS-2 trial that was run in the late 80s. Um, and that's a really good trial to, to look at from that point of view. Um, it's not hematology, but it's a very large, simple trial in the sense that if you have a heart attack, you either take an aspirin or a placebo, 
And at the end of the day, all that people have done is counted the number of deaths. It's, it's very similar to these very large trials like recovery that have been done during COVID as well. Uh, it's simple to do. It can be done in the emergency setting and the like. Um, but one thing that the that was done when it was written up, and it was actually at the request of the Lancet, subgroup analysis was put in to show the dangers of trying to look into subgroups and say things work in this group and not in that group. The subgroup they chose was star sign. Uh, and they found that in two star signs, the, there was no benefit of aspirin. Uh, but in the other 10, there was a large benefit of aspirin. So fundamentally, either this is a chance finding or astrology really does work. And you know, I'll, leave, I'll leave everybody to decide what they think is uh, the more likely solution there. Thanks, thanks for it. No, I'm, I'm interested actually in similar sort of um, ways in which we might approach statistics. There's this um, almost mystical idea about the significance of P is less than not. 0.05 specifically as this kind of like almost magical threshold and, and i remember reading an article in i think it was science or nature somewhere like that a few years ago that was actually suggesting that maybe we get rid of p-values altogether because they they lead to so much kind of magical thinking about this this kind of arbitrary threshold and saying why don't actually we we just go for 95 percent confidence intervals which which in some ways gets people closer to to perhaps what's what's really really going on i just wonder if you've got any any comments on on that and on the on this kind of idea idea of the kind of p 0.05 threshold as this magical truth-telling device so yeah that's a very good point and i think that um even within statistics and statisticians, there are different philosophies about various things. Um, the first thing I probably ought to say is that for some statistical tests, you are largely stuck with a p-value. Um, uh, and that is the strength of the evidence. But you're absolutely right. I mean, p equals 0.05 was invented by a, a guy called Ronald Fisher in a, a book in the 1920s. Um, and I think he he gets it a little bit wrong as well, because he says, um, I, I've got it here, actually, personally, the writer prefers to set a low standard of significance at the 5% point uh, and ignore all, entirely all results which fail to reach this level. So he is saying um, a low standard of significance actually is quite a large B value. So he's using people's 0.05 and not people's 0.01. But if he's, he's saying then that if P is bigger than 0.05, you should ignore the result. Now, we know that that's not a good idea because the meta-analysis, for example, of things like uh, gemtuzumab as ogamycin in AML, uh, tamoxifen for breast cancer takes a whole pile of trials that are not significant in themselves, but together the totality of the evidence is strong. So you shouldn't be completely ignoring these things. But his idea here is that P equals 0.05 is a starting point for negotiations rather than the end result, I think. And that, I think, is important that, you know, you shouldn't start stretching things. Um, you know, if you like... People's 0.05 is more likely in a in a trial of MNMs for whatever disease you want than it is to to take two dice and throw a double six. 
And, and that's, you know, that's not that uncommon. But I do think that actually there is an awful lot to be said. And I think certainly as time has gone on and as outcomes have improved, that it's not just whether something works, it's whether it works well enough. I think it's important here that well enough, you probably need to think about in a, a number of different ways. Um, there's obviously the cost and toxicity to the patient. Uh, you know, the balance between early toxicity and sometimes even early mortality and late benefit. So, you know, there is a balance of benefits and risks going on, which is sort of masked by a p-value. Um, and there is also, I think, particularly, you know, in, in places like the UK with a, a finite health budget, there is an issue of what is actually worth doing in terms of value for money as well as everything else. Mm. And I think that's really important is to understand all of those things. And this is where estimation comes in. So you can say, you know, that something is significant. Well, it could actually have an effect that is too small to worry about. What you want to say is that this effect is going to be big enough, even, you know, you really want as a slam dunk, you know, that the smallest possible estimate of the effect here is big enough to be worth doing. And now you're convincing the payers to actually do it. Yes. If it's just significant, then there's a possibility that the payers won't do it because they will say, well, actually, the cost per life year saved is potentially too high because the effect of the drug is so small. So I like estimation. I think estimation is a very good way of looking at things. It tells you sort of, you know, how many people you need to treat to save a life, to give so many life years. Um, and I also like the idea of sort of breaking down these sort of crude composites like overall survival into understanding what's in hematology likely to be an early disbenefit because of giving a toxic drug versus a later benefit. Um, other diseases, it's the other way around. So, you know, we give anthracyclines and AML, uh, and the risk of the anthracycline is induction death. Um, you give anthracyclines in breast cancer, and the way it's given, there's not a huge rate of induction death, but there is actually a late risk of developing AML and heart disease with it. So the different time windows, the horizons differ according to your setting. Um, and that's, you know, that's important to understand. Um, I think as we get better and better and better, and the drugs get more and more expensive for more and more marginal benefits, understanding what you can do with a, you know, with a basic drug and what you can do with an expensive drug is very important. Um, you know, not least because you'd like to deploy the expensive drug, you know, and the toxic drug in particular as infrequently as you have to. Um, and this is why, you know, there are still debates over the value of transplant in certain areas of hematology. Uh, it's because obviously the benefits are not gigantic. They're, they're moderate. Um, there are disbenefits, quality of life, you know, transplant-related mortality and morbidity. And you have to say to yourself, well, where's the balance point uh, in order to give somebody a transplant and not do more harm than good? Uh, so, you know, that's where estimation comes in. 
Uh, and estimation is much easier to tell people what we think the balance of benefits and risks are. That being said, of course, when we design our clinical trials, our definition of sample size calculations is working entirely on P.05. Um, and that is, you know, that's uh, maybe something that can be changed over time and actually look at it from the point of view of being able to estimate a treatment effect with a certain degree of accuracy. Yeah. So I'm interested, you've done work in clinical trials for three decades now. Have you noticed any trends in how clinical trials are, or how specifically statistics in clinical trials have been used or presented over that time? So... Yeah, there have been some trends sort of, um, as it were, good and bad. Uh, and the good trend is, in a sense, um, trials are much more likely to have a proper sample size calculation, and we are much more likely to see hazard ratios and confidence intervals so that you can actually see the effect size that's going on. Um, there are some trends that are much more difficult Um one of them is, as it were, not the fault of the trialists at all, but the fault of the funders, and that's the ability to get long-term follow-up. And long-term follow-up is absolutely crucial, I think, because we want to know that there are no late effects or how long these effects last for. You know, if you're merely delaying a recurrence by six months, but the outcome after the recurrence is the same, that's very different from preventing a recurrence or turning an early recurrence, which is bad risk, into a late recurrence, which is good risk. So there are all sorts of things there that long-term follow-up helps. Um, I think we're much better in hematology, and I think hematology has probably led the way in terms of getting samples associated with clinical trials. I think they're very good. Um, and of course, outcomes have improved an awful lot. So that changes the question again from one of purely survival into survivorship at what cost are you actually living that little bit longer so that means that issues like quality of life become ever more important um, quality of life you know you could argue is much less important if nobody is surviving um, that being alive even in a less health state is better than being dead um, but when you're actually looking at marginal improvements, quality of life becomes very important, I think, there. Um, the other thing, of course, is with all these samples, we're discovering that the conditions that we sort of lump together under the heading of you know, AML, ALL, etc., are not just one thing. They are a variety of things. So you, we now think of APL, acute promyelocytic leukemia, as different from AML, uh, and it is, and from a statistician's point of view, it's different because you treat it differently. It's a different condition because actually you, the approach you go in with is different. So it needs a different look. And, you know, the introduction of ATRA and arsenic uh, has transformed it from a very bad risk subtype into a, a very, very good risk group. Um, and I think that there is a, an understandable desire to try and look at these sort of targeted therapies um, and to try and look at what mutations are actually driving the leukemia and what mutations drive the response to therapy. And that becomes very difficult because when 
not looking at breast cancer or lung cancer or bowel cancer or heart attacks or childbirth, where you've got tens or even hundreds of thousands of cases you can get hold of every year. We're looking at generally, you know, AML 3,000 cases a year. Uh, a lot of those are quite old. Uh, and so the treatment options are limited. So you end up with dividing what's already quite a small cake into even smaller and smaller pieces. And it becomes very difficult then to run randomized trials. And so you're really relying on a single arm study, which is in a sense a case series. And the decision to enter the trial is not is now something that is important. You know, a 40% response rate in good risk patients is going to be interpreted very differently from 40% in bad risk patients. Uh, so until you know what risk these patients are, you can't interpret it. And that, of course, was the benefit of randomization. It doesn't matter about the selection going in. What you're actually looking at is the difference between them. Uh, and generally speaking, it's quite rare that you find that the decision to enter a trial actually affects the effectiveness of any treatment, that they are generally affected in a much wider population than may necessarily have been in the first trial. In these small case series of patients treated with, you know, a targeted agent, it becomes much harder to understand what's going on. And I think it's then very easy to either find a, a comparator group that does very badly or a comparator group that does quite well. So which one do you believe? It's It becomes very hard. And I think that's a real challenge going forward is that if we don't all band together, then we're not going to be able to get reliable evidence that we can understand going in. I want to spend the last part of the podcast thinking a bit about um, learning statistics because it's something that often, um, I know speaking certainly for myself and for lots of my colleagues, we feel quite nervous about and can feel yeah difficult to know where to get started. And perhaps just to kind of set the scene on that, um, I'd be interested to know if you look back on a kind of early career version of yourself, so when you were first new to trials and healthcare and your own understanding of statistics then, is there anything that you can see has you've learned that's changed in your approach to to um understanding how statistics works over that time yeah i think there's a there's a big difference and actually it's not necessarily to do with statistics for me uh, and i think it's the actually it's the interaction between the clinician and the statistician the equations in statistics are generally speaking quite straightforward and simple Again, there's a there's a lovely quote by Geo Ashley. Like other occult techniques of divination, the statistical method has a private jargon deliberately contrived to obscure its methods from non-practitioners. I think this is probably the, the inbuilt skeptic in me. The more jargon there is, the less intellectual content there is behind it necessarily. Therefore, it's all about being able to have a conversation and have a conversation in, you know, real words words with people. And, you know, if, if I were to say the thing that I learned is that as a statistician, you've got to talk to the clinician and understand as much as possible of what they're doing. It's, it is teamwork that, you know, again, it's important to get the statistician involved early on in the idea. 
because you know if the if the experiment has gone wrong, you're just doing a postmortem. But the statistician doesn't necessarily understand the clinical relevance of what's going on. So being able to understand that enables the right question to be asked. And the important thing is is ask the right important question and answer it reliably and in a way that people are going to be convinced. So, yes, you're absolutely right. The jargon of statistics puts a lot of people off. And I think this is one of the reasons where the idea of significant and not significant is you know, very, very attractive to people because it's a straightforward yes, no. I think we've all seen examples where things have been written up in such an obscure and complicated way. The ultimate aim here is not to get a number at the end of it. It's to actually save lives, improve people's outcomes. So if you do something that nobody believes, what's the point of doing it? You've, you've really, you know, you've, you've taken the goodwill of the participants in your study and said, well, you know, I don't care. You know, well, I'm, I'm just going to do what I want to do with this and I'll come up with some numbers. Uh, it doesn't matter if it changes practice. So the simple methods are always the best from that point of view because they can be explained. But I do think it's important that, you know, every clinician really should have a, a statistician that they can go to and talk to. Alan Burnett um, always talked of it as a walk on the beach. And it's absolutely right that rather than, you know, doing this by email or doing anything like that, the, the more informal way of looking at it, the better. Uh, and I've learned an awful lot about, you know, hematology and the like from some very, very, you know, important hematologists over the years. And I think that what's also important here is that, you know, that the statistician justifies their existence to the clinician or the lab scientist as to what's going on. Um, you know, it, it's a specialist occupation being a statistician. So, you know, you don't expect me to see a patient. So I shouldn't expect you to have to uh, analyze data. And to be honest with you, you probably shouldn't analyze data because, you know, it, it's a question of experience. And that's the whole thing for me is that, you know, it's a, it's a partnership and it's going forward. So, you know, the thing that I learned and I was very experienced you know, very, very fortunate to be exposed to is people who will talk about their subject. Yeah. And so a statistician should listen to clinicians and clinicians should cross-question statisticians because if we can't explain it, then maybe we don't understand it. Thinking kind of along that note of, I guess, being aware sometimes of our own level of expertise or non-expertise in reading statistics what one one thing i'm aware of is when i'm reading a clinical trial report i've often got this fear that there's some sort of trickery going on there's some there's something that's kind of happening but it's it's a skepticism in a clever way where you can kind of really unearth it. it's more of this cynicism that's like oh, i just i you know like can i trust this can't i trust this uh, and obviously there's lots of different parts to reading clinical trials and it's not all about the statistics but i guess i'm I'm just kind of wondering what your advice would be to the clinician who fears that the wall's being pulled over their eyes with stats in some re in some way or another, doesn't feel like they really know exactly what they should and shouldn't be looking for, doesn't know how much they can trust that the kind of due diligence has been done with the statistics before they're reading it, kind of wants to get beyond just that general sense of doubt to something a bit more um a bit more solid. 
generally, if you feel the wool is being pulled over your eyes, it's probably true, because if there is no need to pull the wool over one's eyes, then then fundamentally you don't you don't do it. But the biggest thing in reading a paper is is trying to think, well, how can somebody cheat? I would go back to sort of various series on, you know, there are some in the old BMJ, there are there are some in various places, and ask, how would I cheat if I was doing this thing? Uh, and if it's not explained that you can't cheat, then uh, then start to distrust it. It's okay to be skeptical. I mean, you know, that that that's what a statistician does. You're the optimists and we're the pessimists. <laughs> Thank you. So just finally then, I guess now thinking about those who are involved in clinical research and perhaps trying to um, perhaps have got a statistician, a statistician they're talking with, perhaps haven't managed to find someone yet, um, but just feel like they need to upskill a bit on their um, on their understanding of, of medical statistics to, to, mm-hmm. to just be able to, even if it's just having better conversations with the statistician they're working with, where's a good place to start? Where's a good place to, to go first with wanting to take their learning forward? It's very, very good. And I think quite a complicated question as well. Um, I say there are some very good articles that were done uh, by Doug Altman and Martin Bland over the course of about the last 30 years again, which are called the statistics notes in the British Medical Journal. There are other ones available in other journals as well. There are some quite nice little books like Statistics at Square One, Statistics with Confidence. I genuinely think that the best way is to actually question somebody over and over again. If you don't get it, if you've got somebody, just find somebody, latch onto them. Um, statisticians are great. We'll always work for alcohol. So you advise a beer and we'll we'll do anything basically. I mean, you know, food, beer, coffee. You know, we're 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 very good. If you give us something like that, then we'll talk for hours and hours and hours. Thanks so much. Um, Rob, I want to thank you for your time this morning. It's been a really useful discussion. Thank you. And I want to thank all of our listeners for listening to the Hemisphere podcast today. And we'll be back with you with another episode soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hemisphere podcast. All of Hemisphere's content is open access and can be found at www.hemispherejournal.com. We hope you will join us for future podcast episodes.